This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Julian Dodson, your podcast host. Today, I'm delighted to be talking with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Joseph Linty. Dr. Linty is the author of Redeeming the Revolution, the State and Organized Labor in Post-Bateloco, Mexico, published by the University of Nebraska Press. He is Associate Professor of History at Eastern Washington University. Dr. Linty, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Julian. Joe, I, I wonder if you could begin just by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. And again, thank you very much for inviting me. I've been a fan of uh, NBN for a while, and this is quite an honor. Awesome. I'm uh, originally from Massachusetts, a town called Southbridge, and I, I grew up in a community that was very, very ethnically diverse. I myself am the product of Italian migration. The community has a long history of immigration from Eastern, Western Europe, Asia, and increasingly so Latin America. The town I grew up in had quite a large Puerto Rican population, which, you know, unbeknownst to me at the time, has absolutely Im impacted my life and my, my interests in my, my career. I went to college. I studied history. I had an interest at that time in the American Revolution, Massachusetts, Boston being the sort of context for that. But I became increasingly interested in Latin America simply through, through uh, a trip to Mexico, but more and more appreciating the, the kind of community and the origins that I experienced in, that, in the Latino community in my hometown. While in college, I read a book by someone who would be my future graduate advisor, uh, Dr. Linda Hall, who you know very well. Um, I read her book, Oil Banks and Politics, which is a fairly you know, straightforward history of, of the Mexican Revolution and the role of finances and oil in the post-revolutionary construction of the state. But that, that really sent me off on a track that, that ultimately brought me to New Mexico to study with Dr. Hall. And really, it really shaped my, my research interests in modern Mexico, and specifically the concept of the Mexican Revolution, in a kind of state that that event would ultimately form. So I, I truly enjoyed and loved my experiences at the University of New Mexico studying Latin American history, my travels to, uh, to Mexico over the years. And those, those factors absolutely shaped my career and my research interests, and even a bit of who I am um, personally. Right, and I should uh, I should mention that, that Joe and I, um, uh, as he alluded to, share uh, an academic advisor, Dr. Linda Hall, uh, and and, uh, and Linda, if you're listening, we love you very much. <laughs> um, and Joe and I both both studied at the University of New Mexico. Our time uh, overlapped there. Um, and and like a lot of us, it's really kind of difficult, right, to to travel to Mexico and not 
and not fall in love. Uh, uh, and, and my interest in Mexico kind uh, of came to me in very similar, in a very similar way. Um, so Joe, you've, you've got this, uh, this whole discursive bit in your introduction on the concept of, re- of redemption, right? It's in the title, you know, what it is to, to redeem. Um, and in the Mexican con- context, I wonder if you could uh, elaborate a little bit on the conceptual framing around the title and the central theme of the book. Sure. The... I think it's easy to romanticize Mexican politics and history through a, a religious framework, a, a religious lens. You know, the I think some of the things that brought me into the study of Latin America was my Catholic upbringing. You know, again, to to kind of connect this to my own my own kind of origin story as as an Italian Catholic. The, I was looking for kind of religious symbols in Mexico that had some kind of connection to my own life. And this is dangerous because this can cause you to, to internalize and conceptualize a completely, you know, foreign and, and, and uh, a completely different uh, setting through a very personalized lens, which can lead to some you know, false conclusions. Nevertheless, the story of the Mexican revolution, despite the fact that the Mexican revolution is you know, it was a political, a military, a political, and ultimately uh, state formation movement that had distinct anti-clerical ends, right? That was one of the uh, primary tenets of the revolution was this kind of effort to, to reduce the presence and certainly the economic and political power of the Catholic Church in Mexico. Nevertheless, the, the Catholic superstructure is always there to influence the words, the thoughts, the actions of the great majority of, of, of the Mexican people. And in particular, you know, working class, largely conservative Mexican peoples who form themselves into unions. Um, so the idea of redemption comes very distinctly from the early Christian story of, of the redeemers. Those who would have been, those who would have purchased Christian captives or Christian slaves from from um, outsiders who, who, had, uh, who had gone to battle with, with the Roman Empire and taken them as captives. So redemption li- literally means to purchase the life and ultimately guarantee the salvation of a Christian who is, who is held hostage by a non-Christian. And this comes from, you know, third, fourth century Syria in the Romans, in the early Christians' dealings with the Saracens. So this was not the, a concept that I went into this project you know, imagining would become central to it. Yet at every turn, the, the rhetoric of unionists, specifically the rhetoric of President Luis Echeverria, is just laden with all kinds of Catholic imagery that harkens back to this notion of, of, of salvation. The Mexican government, as led by Echeverria, sees itself as an institution that will save the people from this sort of pre-revolutionary state of anarchy, poverty, you know, uh, inefficiency, Imperialism, all these, all these kind of typical rhetorical tools that are now uh, cast to the people with religious, with religious iconography or imagery. So the idea of a redeemer is something which is very, very common 
in the story of Latin American and specifically Mexican politics. The great Mexican historian Enrique Krause wrote a book called Redeemers, and he, uh, he points to a number of, of political figures who overtly or not identify themselves as redeemers. And his book focuses on people like Simon Bolivar, um, intellectuals like Octavio Paz. Interestingly, though, he doesn't mention Echeverria, who uh, I call a redeemer. But according to Krause, who has a very personal connection to Mexico, of course, uh, 1968, Echeverria, he doesn't ascribe Echeverria that, that title in a way which I think is interesting. But I think through the words and actions of Luis Echeverria, others in Mexico, importantly, Jesus Reyes Heroles, president of the party during the period I study, there is very clear kind of redemptionist tactics, and certainly redemptionist rhetoric being used. Right. And, you know, I think it's probably um, <clears throat> important, at, you know, at this point for our readers who maybe don't have like a, a, a complete picture of, you know, what the revolution was, right? What it, uh, what it signified, you know, between 1910, 1920, 1920, 1930, but then after, right, it, it kind of takes on uh, a meaning that is often uh, shaped by, you know, sort of state civil society uh, dialogues in a lot of ways. And uh, what I was really interested in is that you, you, you kind of go uh, way back, right, with this idea of redemption and kind of filling out how it applies, right, to, uh, to this particular moment that's set off by 1968, Right. Can you can you talk a little bit, just offer a little bit of a little bit of the context there, so our, our listeners kind of get a sense of exactly what you're talking about about redemption in the context of the Mexican Revolution. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. Let me just say, Julian, it's it's a pleasure to be speaking about this with someone who's as knowledgeable about modern Mexico as you are. I look forward to it. Right. Well, you know, <laughs> you know, us Mexicanists that, that, uh, that do the revolution, we are, you know, neck deep in the minutia. Yes, sure, right? Right, right. Um, so yes, I, I, uh, although I don't need to explain, give the kind of historical overview to you, certainly there are some out there who I would like to read the book and, you know, students of ours who, who need a little bit more background than <laughs> we might. The, um, 1968, is is the fulcrum, I think, upon which modern Mexican history really begins. The, the events that occurred, the student movement that begins quite a, quite a few years before that, but ultimately that culminates in 1968, does produce pressure on the state unlike anything seen in Mexico since the time of the revolution. And certainly what happens on October 2, the evening of October 2, October 3, 1968, through a massacre of hundreds of people at Tlatelolco, puts pressure on the Mexican government in a way that it had not experienced in the post-revolutionary period. So these very, very significant challenges to the authority and thus the legitimacy of the Mexican government forces politicians to reestablish rhetorically and eventually, through legislation, it forces them to reestablish why the Mexican government, as a product of the revolution, is justified to lead the nation. And I think 
what I, what I established early on, specifically in this very long introduction in chapter one, is how the institution Mexico has never been, had never been, I should say, prior to the revolution, this sort of all-consuming uh, organism that had a, a, a significant impact on people's lives. After 1920, certainly after 1928, that changes. And the Mexican state does become a state in the sort of, in the, in the, in the context that we understand it from a, you know, developed world perspective. So 1968 challenges the authority of the government and requires it to, to take action to restore its legitimacy and thus perpetuate its rule. So in that, in that context, right, the, the concept of redemption that you, that you lay out there becomes really important because it, it is in this, it is in this labor law, the, the 1970 uh, labor law that you, you kind of focus on where, you know, the, the Echeverria uh, uh, administration attempts to, to say, you know, to organize labor, we are the bearers of, of the revolution. We are still relevant to the revolution. And, and as, and as you say, uh, you know, they claim that, that legitimate revolutionary, um, position. Uh, am I right there? Yes, absolutely. So I, I want to, I want to maybe shift a little bit and, and ask you a question about, um, about archives, um, about methodologies that you're employing. Um, what's, what's kind of the, 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 your approach to your sources. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Thank you. The research for this specific project, well, let me let me recast that. I, I've been going to Mexico to do archival work since, in earnest, since about 2004. Really, 2005 was my first major research project when I researched for my master's thesis. And doing archival work in Mexico in 2004, 2005, is quite different than, than it is today. I mean, then... You know, 2005, when I began really delving into the um, General Archive of the Nation, the AGN, in 2006 and 7, there were no digital finding aids. You know, there are, are, are guias or catalogs that tell you basically the names of collections, but that's about as, as, as detailed as it gets at that time. So my, my first experiences were going to certain galleries in the AGN and other institutions, speaking to an archivist, usually a wonderful man or a woman who, who knew history, who knew that had a, you know, an expert, uh, a masterful connection with the resources, and would then uh, go to the stacks, come back a little bit later with boxes that presumably could help me do my work. So this is not a a targeted research trip by any means. This is this is sort of a scattershot approach to understanding a research question. And we would have these very, very, you know, long detailed discussions about exactly what I want to do. And the archivist would make decisions based on based on what I said. You know, where some of the most interesting case studies of, say, worker-employer conflict occurred. If she believed or if he believed that it was in Monterrey, that's where my sources would come from. If she believed it was in San Luis Potosí, that's where my sources would come from. So my first kind of dalliance in, in Mexican archives was 
incredibly personal and beautiful experience, but very inefficient by the standards of modern archival science. You know, I often tell my students who are who are students at a you know a regional comprehensive university in Eastern Washington. They have access to the state's um, eastern uh, eastern Washington eastern Washington regional branch of the state archive. They also have access to the digital archive online, which anyone on earth can access. And I often, I often tell them that research for them is, is simply unfair. <laughs> they can do things that many of us who research in the developing world simply can't do. And with a level of efficiency, which is almost impossible, even to this day in Mexico. And let me say one thing before I forget. This changed quite a bit in Mexico, largely through the efforts of an army of of students at the National University, UNAM, and students led by a Latin American, as some of us know very well. Her name is Dr. Linda Arnold, and she's a history professor at uh, Virginia Tech. I don't know if you know her. I, yeah, not. I do. I, I do. And and, sure. and this is this is uh-huh. a really important point that the the AGN has has come a long way, and and Dr. Arnold has done so much work to make that archive um, you know legible for for scholars and mm-hmm. and absolutely a shout out to to dr linda arnold is in order yes absolutely and i met her on my first days at the agn we chatted a little bit i told her about my project she gave me some excellent tips on you know uh, what kind of what kind of collections to look at but the digital the digital finding aid that she produced is is a, a magnum opus it's a lifetime's work of someone who spent years i'm not even sure how many years many many years in that archive, simply going through the connections and doing the, doing the you know thankless tasks of of cataloging these things and ultimately putting them online for researchers to use. So the AGN, I have immense you know fondness for. I love that place. It's it's come quite a it's it's come so far simply since I've been working there, beginning in about two thousand five. And do you, when you were, uh, when you were in the archive and, and in a lot of cases, you know, uh, we, in the early stages, right, we kind of know what we're looking for, but we don't really, and, and the help of the archivists and, you know, and especially as you mentioned, those, those, uh, uh that army of students from UNAM that, that have, um, that have worked, uh, as diligently, um, to, to catalog and to, again, make that archive, uh, legible. I wonder if, uh, if you, in the course of your research, uh, found, you know, any, any juicy stories from the documents in the archives that you'd like to share? Absolutely. The, the majority of my work, probably, probably two thirds, maybe, maybe even more was done in the national archive. It was done in gallery two, which is, you know, colloquially referred to as the spy archive, the spy archive. Here you have the declassified papers of the, the General Directorate of Political and Social Investigations, or the DG, DGIPS, which was one of these uh, parallel bureaucracies. It was one of the two intelligence bureaucracies operating in Mexico in the 60s and 70s during the period I review. And here you basically read the reports of moles, men mostly, who had infiltrated union meetings, infiltrated student, infiltrated student, uh, student uh, meetings, and they describe who's there. They describe the kinds of of placards and banners that they're they're hoisting. 
and they give it just a little bit of a uh, commentary on what's going on, you know, it, how, how much of a threat this might be to the Mexican state. So hundreds, hundreds of these accounts are absolutely essential. The, the accounts of spies, basically, you know, government agents who are infiltrating these 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 groups that are deemed that they, they deem subversive. You know, we would typically deem them simply, you know, political organizations. But in the context of 1960s and 70s Mexico, specifically in the context of the Cold War, these groups that are are advocating position counter to that of the revolution state are deemed subversive, communist, of course. And there's this story after story that are you know, fantastically interesting about, about the actions of these groups and in the way that the state sees them as this existential threat, threat to the, the stability of the Mexican government. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right. And what's interesting, Joe, is, is you know, the, the Cold War in Mexico <clears throat> clearly plays out much differently than in, uh, you know, for example, Brazil, Argentina, uh, Chile, and the rest of Latin America. Um, that, and, and, <laughs> There, there are, you know, very specific reasons why, of course, you know, Mexico has sort of this sort of soft dictatorship, you know, the dictatorship of the PRI for, uh, for so long kind of, um, exhibits or, 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 or kind of displays a kind of, um, you know, electoral democracy that, uh, that kind of masks a soft, a soft dictatorship. Right. And of course, you know, there, 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 there is, you know, dirty war that, that Mars that, that particular period in Mexico, but not in the same way that, uh, you know, the Argentine junta is, is marred by dirty war or, you know, the, the regime of, of Augusto Pinochet in, in Chile, for example, how do you uh, how do you see that? Um, it, it, is that kind of your your experience? Do you have any any kind of thoughts on uh, on the the key differences between Mexico and the Cold War and and the rest of Latin America? Oh, the differences are are profound. Yet there is unfortunately a a unifying thread. The differences is that the revolution as the revolution nation. The, the revolution as a metonym that stands in for the government, I believe, and I argue this in the book, requires the government to, to constantly contend and ascertain its, its connection to the working classes of Mexico, the peasants and the workers. And to a lesser extent, you know, uh, low paid, but white collar professionals at a, at a sort of lower level, employ, at an employee status, I should say. So because the revolution has this overt working class solidarity, the Mexican government must always advocate for the positions of the people, of the masses. And that means that it can't be this overt, it can't have this overt alliance with these oligarchic uh, actors like landowners, 
like the, like the large company owners, like the church for that matter. So the Mexican Revolution requires the government to be populist and presidents to, to a greater or lesser extent after 1924 you know, take on that identity. Luis Echeverria and his successor, Jose Lopez Portillo, are overt national populists. Everything they, everything they say, basically, is how they're defending the ideals of the revolution, the ideals of Zapata, the ideals of Madero, the ideals of Carranza, even. Still, uh, where this contrasts is that, of course, where, of course, this contrasts with military dictatorships that come to power in places like Argentina, places like Chile, in you know, Central American republics like Nicaragua, Guatemala. Nevertheless, there is a dirty war being waged. It's smaller in scope, but you know, scholars have proven that it, it's, it's as vicious. Um, a great book by um, historian Alexander Avinga looks at how the dirty war waged by Echeverria in Guerrero in the 1970s, how brutal it was and the extent of, we're not, we're not just talking a few isolated cases of kidnappings and murders, we're talking about hundreds being killed tortured, executed, sometimes having their you know, bodies dumped in the Pacific from helicopters. So there's, here you, get a, you, you, here you get a case study of how the rhetoric of the revolution absolutely juxtaposes the reality of this Cold War state that is intent upon preserving security and stability, all the while it, 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 uh, so it, it shrouds itself in this rhetoric of working class populism and social justice. You know, there's not a whole lot of talk about social justice in Pinochet's Chile, but in Mexico, that's, that is the, the airwaves and the, in the newspapers are, are absolutely saturated with that kind of. Right. And again, we're, we're back to the revolution, the importance of the revolution in the 20th century. Yes. Right. Uh, it extends beyond, uh, sort of, um, uh, the cold war. Right. Um, yes. I wanted to ask you a question about, challenges you you talked a little bit about you know very early in the in the research um challenges with sort of finding what it is you were you were looking for in the archives um but on a broader a broader scale i wonder if you could talk to any challenges either in the research or the writing uh of the book that that were significant challenges yes uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was difficult, and you know, for a lot of academics who begin a, a major research project, the sources, as I mentioned, my research my research method was pretty scattershot in the beginning before I really had a sense of what exactly I was looking for. And I, as I mentioned, I I scoured hundreds, maybe thousands of case studies that were all useful, but not in a kind of systematic or a refined way. But ultimately, I think access, this, this project, because it was relatively, relatively recent, like I said, I, I began the research process in 2007, specifically for this project. And at this point, you're, you're 40 years removed from Tatalolco, more or less, and there's people around that I can speak to. But as a graduate student, I, I don't have a lot of access. I don't have a lot of clout. I do, I do have to recognize my privilege as a North American white male. You do have access to people that others, including 
Mexican students don't have. And that's something I think that I've been able to, uh, unfortunately, enjoy even more so in, in, in subsequent years due to my, you know, once you have a doctorate in Mexico, doors open. You can speak to politicians. You can speak to certainly academics at all levels. And again, being a North American and being a male allows you to have access that, uh, that um, typical Mexican students and researchers don't have. But in the beginning, I, I didn't have any of that access. I wanted to conduct oral histories, but it, it, I had very little access to union officials, um, certainly government officials who could have conceivably told me about firsthand experiences from this time. So initially, my, my access was fairly limited, although that's changed in recent years. So you you make the argument, and <clears throat> this is a good a good way to kind of get into um, <clears throat> your assessment of the the Echeverria um, uh, period. You make the the argument um, uh, that Echeverria, and I'm going to quote just a, a bit that quote most closely followed the salvation matrix. Kind of in reference to what we were talking about earlier, this concept of of redemption. And he's been, uh, you alluded to this in, in the context of the Dirty War in Mexico, he's been a rather vilified figure in, in Mexican history for his role uh, in, in the massacre at Plata Loco, he wasn't president at the time, um, and, and also in the context of the Dirty War. Um, in the context of post-Plata Loco labor relations, how does he fit in there? Can you, can you talk a little bit about how he fits into that, as you say, uh, salvation matrix? Good question. That's absolutely central to the book. The my thesis, which is certainly the most controversial aspect aspect of the book, is that after Tlatelolco, Echeverria, Secretary of the Interior during the uh, dur during the massacre of Tlatelolco, he is the one who is running. He's running the day to day campaign of the Mexican state to counter the student movement. He's, he's the one dealing directly, for example, with the National Strike Committee. And he's the one ordering the army and later these sort of paramilitary units to counter students and in case of the massacre of Tatarolco, kill them. So he's vilified and with with good reason. He, he absolutely took, was the one who sort of, you know, pulled the trigger, pardon the, uh, the pun, it's a, a terrible pun in this context, on, on the... Uh, the use of the Olympic Battalion against the students on October 2 and 3, 1968. So he's never going to be forgiven by the Mexican left or anyone who has any sympathy with, with any kind of you know, political activism in Mexico. But in terms of his relationship to the working class, that's a different story. I mean, there's been a lot of great literature written by those who took part in 68. People like, for example... Elena Paniotowska, um, Gladys Hernandez, Paco Ignacio Taibo. These were men and women who took part in 68. They, they took part in the demonstrations. They occupied campuses. But they also spoke to factory workers because they believed that their cause had salience to blue-collar Mexican workers. And at least in the case of Paco Ignacio Taibo, he pointed out how most factory workers supported the cause of the students. You know, they might have they might have harbored some class resentment. This is you know this is an age old uh, reality. Workers and students in a country like Mexico, where 
despite the fact university education is free, it's still exclusive only to those in the middle classes because, of course, you have to, if you're in school studying, you can't work, right? There's an opportunity cost involved in going to college, which means that most working class people can't go to college, in addition to very, very difficult entrance exams, which keep the children of the working class out of university. Nevertheless, according to uh, um, scholars who participated in 68, most workers supported the cause of the students. That is not evident in the writings of the official organs of the, of the major unions, like the CTM. The Confederation of Mexican Workers, which is the, the primary actor in my book, expresses nothing but anger, resentment, and even hatred toward Mexican students. It constantly casts them as privileged, petulant, meaning that they're childish, that they don't know anything about the real world, that they're effeminate. That's, that's, a, uh, that's a pejorative that comes up a lot. You know, they wear, their, they wear long hair, they have fancy clothes, they listen to strange, exotic music. In, in essence, they're not real men. And in essence, they're not real Mexicans. So the official position of the unions and in the periodicals that they produce is that the students and Mexican workers have nothing in common. And therefore, simply by reading the editions of the of CETEME, the, the weekly magazine of the CTM, you would think that there's absolutely no commonality in, in the cause and in, in some of the struggles of Mexican workers and students. So again, rhetorically, in the pages of these union periodicals, Echeverria, is, he's a savior. He, he defends and, and promotes the, the interests of the Mexican worker at the great expense of the privileged, petulant, imperialistic classes of the Mexican elite, those who send their children to fancy universities to get educations instead of working to build a country. So they, they have a healthy, healthy reverence for him. And that, that's kind of interesting, uh, you know, because it is it is sort of like a, a major intervention that you're making there that the major, right, the the national body, the, the CTM, um, it didn't support if you, you know, if you had certain certain workers, organizations, certain unions that that did support the students. It was the the, the larger national body that supported Echeverria. Um, uh, which is which is kind of a, an interesting thing to think about, and and I think, as you say, does kind of put him into this mold um, as as salvation uh, or into the salvation matrix, as you say. I understand you met Echeverria. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? I did. I did. Um, and this and this really reinforces what I said a bit earlier about how, you know, we live in, in the United States, we live in a credential society. Mexico is an even more <laughs> clear-cut credential society with credentials, with degrees, and with, uh, with a professional reputation. You can do things that regular people can't. And what I mean by that is that all of a sudden doors are open. I can now talk to union heads. I can now talk to, I can, I can walk inside the, the headquarters of the PRI on uh, Avenida Insurgentes and, and get an interview with maybe the party president if, if he's available. I can speak to 
um, you know, academics at the highest level simply through my credentials. And this meant that when this book was published, I, I do have connections in Mexico, people with people who are very, very high up in politics and in academia who were very interested in this book. And it, it was published almost you know, 2017 is nearly the 50th anniversary of Tlatelolco. So there was some uh, coincidence, you know, an important milestone there. So I presented the book at UNAM, which I consider, you know, the, the highlight of, of my career. It probably always will be. This is the, this is the, the bastion of the Mexican student movement. It's one of the finest universities in the world. And there, there were people who were very interested who, who had connections to politics that basically opened doors for, for me to meet the former president. So the day after I presented that, I was escorted to his home and I met with him and his daughter. And this is not an interview by, by any chance. Um, let me give you a little bit of the backdrop here because at the time, Echeverria was 95. He's been living in a, in a state of self-imposed exile basically since 2007. In 2007, the Mexican Supreme Court had basically ruled that the statute of limitations had expired on any purported crimes against humanity or crimes that he might have committed while president. And they were looking at some of these, uh, these allegations of murder that he carried out as president against guerrilleros in the, in the mountains of Guerrero, against the students at Plaza Lolco. But again, to, to make a long story short, they ruled that the statute of limitations had, had expired and that he could not be held, he could not be tried for these war crimes. Since then, however, Echeverria has basically been shut in at his home in Mexico City, and he hasn't been seen in the public eye. So it's, it was quite remarkable to be able to go into his home and meet him and discuss this book. I delivered him a couple copies of the book. I signed them in a way that I consider academically honest. I basically wrote, I wrote in the inscription, I wrote, to a true redeemer of the principles of the Mexican Revolution, which might be shocking initially, but I think what I meant by that was that he, he promoted ideals of the revolution that were rhetorically accurate. He did promote workers' rights, one of the central tenets of the revolution, through the you know, promulgation of the new federal labor law of 1970. And again, the book highlights all the ways that his government did succeed to create institutions like Infonavit, the uh, housing institute, how it did pass several um, minimum wage increases. He also promoted other aspects of other rhetorical aspects of the revolution. The, the new agrarian, uh, agrarian law of 1971 dealt specifically with the issue of land reform and land invasion in Mexico. So rhetorically, he was an arch defender of the revolution. And that's, that's what I wanted to convey in that inscription. And, uh, but meeting him also allowed me to sort of test some of my conclusions about, about him. And he is the, you know, the most important individual in the book. Echeverria cast himself as, as, a, as a true Mexican, meaning he, he had a very overt anti-imperial message. Famously, he did things like he replaced 
at, at state dinners, he replaced whiskey and bourbon with agua de horchata, tequila, other kind of you know, uh, locally produced Mexican drinks. He always wore the guayabera, the, you know, the, the formal shirt of the of the kind of Caribbean um, Caribbean gentleman. He and um, his wife, Doña Maria, Maria Esther, the first lady, they constantly appeared in public dancing traditional Mexican bailes. He, he liked to tell the press that he was like most Mexicans who spoke one language, Spanish. So he, he cast himself as a true man of the people in a way that, in a way that uh, Cardenas did, of course, 40 years earlier, but with less <laughs> sincerity. You know, Cardenas was, by, by all accounts, both but from the perspective of his, his ethnic origin, from the perspective of his class, from the perspective of his tastes, his, his, his mannerisms, he was a regular Mexican man. Echeverria absolutely came from this, what the historian Daniel Cosio Villegas called the chemically pure uh, political class of Mexico City. So he had to work very hard to appear a man of the people. So being in his home, I, you know, I was, it was interesting, if nothing else, to see paintings of the Virgin of Guadalupe on every wall. He, uh, he had a home which absolutely fit into this, you know, it, was, it had this aesthetic um, congruence with the Echeverria that he tried to depict himself as, as president in the 1970s. Well, and, and you know, what you're, what you're describing there is, is certainly a, um, a populist uh, political persona um, that uh, maybe he had to work a little bit harder than, than Cardenas did, certainly, but, um, but still he, he wasn't that far uh, from that image, if I understand what you're saying. Yes and no. I, I, again, he, um, I guess in any, with any life, there's, you can find as many contradictions as you can, can find congruences. One thing I noticed about Echeverria, when I delivered him the book, I, I, I handed it to his daughter, who, as I mentioned in the book, uh, as a, um, she's a spitting image of her mother. And her mother is almost deified at the house. Her picture is everywhere. She was a very, she, she, in contrast to her husband, is beloved by the Mexican people. And when I mentioned to my Mexican friends, I was working on a book that focused on President Echeverria. Almost immediately they talked about Doña Maria Esther, the first lady. Because she was as famous and certainly more admired by the Mexican people. And the house is almost a, a museum to her. When I handed um, Echeverria's daughter the book, she, she was grateful and she told me how her father reads everything. He reads newspapers from all over the world and how he, he'll, he will read the book immediately. And I instantly remembered writing in my book about how Echeverria constantly, constantly said, even boasted about the fact that he was monolingual, that he only spoke Spanish. So I thought that was kind of an interesting kind of curiosity there, the fact that maybe, maybe he did speak multiple languages, but as a, as a populist leader, the, the, the goal was to tell the people how much like them he was that he was just an ordinary guy, spoke Spanish, you know, revered the Virgin of Guadalupe and, uh, you know, uh, dressed like them, looked like them, prayed like them. So I wonder how much of that was simply political theory. Right. Well, it's a good, um, I think a good way to um, kind of get into the next question that I had. Um, 
Echeverria kind of seems um, seems like the one of the last, um, maybe with the exception of Lopez Portillo, uh, kind of the last of, of these. Um, <clears throat> well, okay, so you use two terms, politico and technical in in the book in the in the epilogue your book is great it says as a conclusion that kind of wraps up your discussion of of the post latin local period but then you look a little bit forward um into kind of the decade of the 80s and the, and the 90s where you see uh, a kind of a massive change in political culture uh in this in this period and that era of the luisa luisa Cheveria kind of kind of dwindles it kind of uh fades away Talk a, a little bit about those changes that you see in the in the in the eighties and the nineties as Mexico moves fully into uh, a neoliberal era. Yes, yeah. The uh, you're right. The book the book really focuses on the presidency of Echeverria and to a lesser extent Lopez Portillo, who I call the last revolutionary uh, populist or the last revolutionary nationalists to hold the presidency in Mexico. In, in some ways, their legacy is shaped by what succeeded them. The, the rise of the technicals, right? The rise of these foreign-educated Mexican uh, politicians who, instead of studying law at UNAM, like most Mexican presidents did prior to, <laughs> prior to them, they study business or they study finance or they even study things like, you know, uh, community planning or uh, urban planning in foreign institutions, specifically places like Harvard, Princeton, the University of Chicago. And this extends to the governors and, and mayors, even not just presidents in Mexico. So the technicals, they move farther and farther away from the actual events of the revolution. You know, Echeverria's father was an important revolutionary general. So he had that, he was steeped in revolutionary uh, rhetoric and tradition. So we're moving away from this, you know, pivotal event, this, you know, crucible of the modern Mexican state. And we're moving into a, a time when leaders have their, they feel more comfortable allowing foreign ideals to influence their minds and thinkings. Technicos consider themselves experts who are, who are efficient and proficient in, you know, governance in contrast to the polit politicos who they see as hacks or just, you know, uh, ideologues or, or, you know, charismatic individuals with very little, little command of, of governing. And with the rise of someone like Carlos Salinas, it becomes, it becomes almost common to idealize the efforts of someone like Echeverria and even Lopez Partillo. <laughs> There's very little to praise about his presidency and his actions. Um, if, if Echeverria was steeped in contradiction and, you know, crass populism, Lopez Portillo took that to an to a unimaginable level. So the, I, I believe that the legacies of someone like Echeverria improve with the rise of the Technicos because there are Mexicans who believe that their country has been seized by these um, outsiders, Mexicans with foreign ideals, Mexicans with foreign connections, and they almost long for the time of the supremacy of the revolution state metonym, which absolutely disappears beginning in 1982. So we, you know, I, I just want to uh, thank you again. This, this has really been a great 
interview. We've taken a lot of your time, but in the moments that we have left, um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. Sure. I, uh, I'm not straying too far afield from, from this project in that I'm looking at a sort of third, a third tenet of the revolution, land reform. You know, I feel like I covered the workers' rights aspect. Now I want to move into land reform because I believe that this is the sort of primary story of the Mexican Revolution. The, the need to distribute land to the disentailed masses of Mexico. People have lost their land through a century of, of manipulation, um, the rise of the, of the haciendas, for example. So land reform instituted in, in the, with the Constitution of 1917 ultimately distributes land, yes, but it doesn't create a sustainable rural lifestyle. In fact, the goals of it might have been flawed from the get-go. Mexico, like a lot of Latin American nations, experiences massive internal migration and ultimately urbanization in the 20th century. So a lot of these people from the defunct tejidos and, and ranches that, that fail move into the cities and turn Mexico into a country which is today 90% urban. So my, my, my next project is looking at internal migration, hyper-urbanization, and how Mexican squatters are essentially integrated and even co-opted into the modern state. So what I do is I, I, I look at the rise of shanty towns and I look at how these people interact with the government and the power that they exert vis-a-vis the Mexican, the Mexican state. That sounds like fascinating research, Joe. Um, can't wait to read it. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> um, again, we've been talking to Dr. Joseph Linty, uh, the author of Redeeming the Revolution, the State and Organized Labor in post Loco Mexico. I want to thank you, Joe, for talking with me today. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Oh, it's been, yeah. it's been my pleasure. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to the New Books in Latin American Studies podcast. I'm Julian Dodson. Until next time. <laughs>